0: Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and the all new far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
5: <laughs>
2: this is the starship sova everybody welcome hello and welcome to show 416 i am your host tony c smith hello everyone i hope everyone is fine and dandy the very last show of 2015 how cool man is that Charging on right into 2016. Lots planned for 2016. New narrators, as new stories. New oh, new all sorts. Jeremy dropped us a list there, and like you see, we're just so excited of what's kind of what we've got planned in this new year. Do you know what I mean? So hopefully you'll kind of stick with it, and you know, just enjoy what we've got. And they like say we've got our funding now, you know, it's a scary time, it's a scary time, <laughs> don't, don't get us wrong. But, you know, we, we kind of hopefully are going to last the year there now, the whole three shows. If you want to donate, yes, I'm hitting it straight away there. Please pop over the Patreon page and get into that and get some good vibes going. Give yourself some good vibes for 2016. I'll tell you what's coming in then, today's show. First up is a little bit of fiction, Tempera Mutata by Antulia Belovsky. That's coming up. Then we have Science News, the very last Science News by Mr. J.J. Campanella. Then we have our very own Jeremy Sal, our assistant editor, is taking up the reins and he's going to be talking to Karen Bovenmeyer, who is the editor of Mothership Zeta. This is a new sign coming from the stable of Escape Artists. Hell, do you know what I mean? It's going to be fantastic if it's coming from that kind of stable, you know, like the pedigree of Escape Pod. So Jeremy's going to see, well, with a final interview of 2015, talking to Karen Bovenmeyer. then the main fiction is Julian of Earth by Colin P. Davies. That is all coming into the dear show. Oh, and right at the end, past the credits, past the, the, the final outro, is a little talk by myself about... My experiences with getting fit and getting healthy. I got such a, like I say, a good, you know, response to the kind of <laughs> troubles in the Lake District. I thought it'd be nice to kind of, you know, do something like that as well, talk again. So, right at the end, past all the science fiction stuff, past, past the kind of music, the kind of, the outro, there's a little bit of me talking away there again. So, you don't have to listen to it, you know, attack it on there. So, if you're not interested in that, you know, if you're not interested in me, <laughs> feel free to move on. So, like I say, first up is a little bit of science fiction, a little short fiction, Tempura Mutata by Anatolia Belovsky, which originally appeared in in stupefying stories. And like I say, if you haven't even checked out that magazine there, please, please. Pop- Please, please do that. So I'll give you a little heads up. Anatolia Belovsky is a Russian-American author and translator of speculative fiction. He was born in a city that went through six or seven owners in the last century, all who used to do little more than drive to church on Sundays. He is old enough to remember tanks rolling through on their way to Czechoslovakia in 1968 after being traded to the US for a shipload of grain and a defector to be named later. He learned English from Star Trek reruns and went to be on to become a paediatrician in the area of New York where English is only the fourth most commonly used language. His original work has appeared in such venues as Idiomansa, Nature, Futures, Stupefying Stories, Daily Mammoth Science Book, Book of Diesel, Punk, and he's actually been on as well, The Cast of Wonders, Tales of Old and Toasted Cake and his translations from Russian have sold to science fiction and fantasy. Fantasy and science fiction, the year's best, SF32, edited by Gardner Does Wars. Grimdark. And he blogs about his writing. I'll put a link on as well to Anatolia as well. If you want to come over there and say, say hello to him. Pop over the website and there's all, again, there's all links to everything on the website. This story is being narrated by G. S. Arquin, who is an actor, writer, musician and pessimist optimist. He lives in Portland, Oregon and spends a large portion of his time producing The Overcast. Well done, It's one little... Hats off, you know what I mean. Kind of whoever has the time and energy to kind of do these audio fiction podcasts is just, you know, GS. Well done, so, and it's actually it's a it's a damn fine one as well. Please put that one on your your podcatcher again. There will be a link there so you can go over and see it. It's featuring stories from the Pacific Northwest and beyond. And actually, I've got a link there if you want to go over there and listen to the Overcast. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Tempora Mutantur
5: by Anatoly Belilovsky Read by J.S. Arquin April first, 2848 Bidding farewell to the Shah of Stalinpur was in itself a week-long affair, what with the opening of the Museum of Glorious Antiquities and the Orgies to follow, but now Pundit and I are happily embarked upon the Starling. "'sailing up the River Volga toward the Bellamore Canal. "'There, we shall rendezvous with the elephant teams "'to help us reach the Arctic Ocean "'before the start of the monsoon season. "'I am ashamed to report that my state of inebriation "'had caused me to embark without my books or toiletries. "'It is fortunate that I have pundit for my cabin mate. "'He is seemingly prepared for every exigency.' and his collection of papers on the savage continent is like nothing I have ever seen. And, a most agreeable surprise, he speaks not only Swahindi and the tribal Anglic dialects, but my native Paruski as well. I have also made acquaintances among the crew. I endeavored to make certain that the ship is amply provisioned against becalming or marooning, taking great pains to conceal my irrational dread of anthropophagia. The captain has informed me that the seas along our route are teeming with fish, and victualling is among the least of his concerns. I find this most reassuring. April 15th The starling has all sails to the wind, but even so barely make six knots, and I am sick of mackerel for breakfast. I am almost devoured by ennui, so much so that I had to fight the temptation to jump overboard during our lengthy transit of the coast of Greenland. Were it not for the crocodiles that infest the shallows, I should have swam to shore, and to perdition with my duty to science. The nightmares, however, of long, long, Sharp, dagger-like saurian teeth tearing my flesh have kept me firmly ensconced in my stifling cubicle. Pundit, bless his soul, has his research to occupy his attention. He uses terms like elision and epenthesis to explain his theories. To wit that the key to understanding lost civilizations lies in the painstaking analysis of toponyms and ethnonyms. I had long known that Américans were so feared by their neighbors that their very name was derived from the same Indo-European root, mri, as the Latin, memento mori. The meaning of the suffix, pundit informed, has not yet been conclusively determined. Canucks, were the Americans' neighbors to the north, and killers of Canucks is one possible etymology. In my own language, Paruski, the name parses as Umri, which is die in the imperative, and Kantsi, or ends. Pundit has shared with me a theory rarely discussed in academia, that Khan refers to cannibalism, of which the natives were often accused. Having recovered from a momentary swoon, I hasten to point out that this accusation is only to be found in texts written by their adversaries and should therefore be taken with a modicum of skepticism. Of course, no surviving records show the least scintilla of friendliness to Americans. Perhaps they had no friends, but only slaves and enemies. I cannot wait to start my excavations, if only to prove this theory wrong. April 20th We have gained a following wind, and the captain has altered course, lest we bottom on the shoals of Boss Town, or reefs off Rod Island. The Gulf of Land is no more than two days' sail away. As Pundit subjects each map notation to his linguistic analysis, it amazes me how even the names of the American cities reflect their violent past bayonet and Sack and warsing town, the ancient capital to the south, where the great spear and the giant five sided shield were found some years ago. It is difficult to dispute the depictions of Américans as bloodthirsty, rapacious savages. April 23rd We have dropped anchor in the calm, clear waters off Land. Already I can see, or at least imagine, the outlines of buried treasure in the contours of the sediment. Tomorrow we dive. April 26th I spend as much time as I can at the bottom, looking for artifacts under thick layers of sand. We have uncovered pieces of a great idol that once stood at the mouth of the harbor, north of the slave pens at Hell is Island. We found a granite pedestal in the shape of a shuriken, near it a hand clutching the hilt of a broken katana sword, and a stele with an eroded inscription in Anglic. It will be the very first piece I shall bring up for Pundit's perusal. April 27th I am seized by dire apprehensions. Pundit has deciphered the partial inscription. At first glance, simply a demand for slaves. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. I cannot, however... Reconcile with American's well-known brutal efficiency the desire this inscription professes for inferior workers or indifferent breeding stock. Could this be a demand for sacrificial victims? Pundit suggested, half in jest, that it is a request for alimentary imports. I told him off quite sharply, of course, but the possibility cannot be dismissed. My sole consolation is that, so far, I have seen nothing to indicate anthropophagia among the extinct natives. Still, much remains to be explored. And so I consign myself to my uneasy dreams. April 27. Oh, the horror! Pundit has not spoken to me all day. The shock to him is as great or greater. As for myself, I have been unable to eat. The great bronze idol that bore the ominous inscription, we found its head, and near it, the sight shall haunt my nightmares till the end of my existence. Seven in number, long, tapered, dagger sharp, each over two meters long. No, I cannot bear it. I close my eyes and see them as they must have been centuries ago. Blood running down their gleaming edges. What manner of people? People? Demons? Fiends? Who but the most depraved of savages would endow their deity with such monstrous, wicked teeth?
2: There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Anatolia. Anatolia, thank you so much. It's lovely to have you on Starship Sova and GS Arquin. What a, what a voice there. Excellent. Thank you so much. Bringing in the short fiction for 2015, closing there with a story like that. Well, well done. Like I say, don't forget, it is part of Stupefying Stories, first published there. Links onto Anatolia's site. And there's a link actually to GS Arquin as well if you want to pop over there and say hello. So next up is... J.J. Campanella, rounding us off for 2015. Jim, sir.
6: Greetings and merry yuletide intoxications, my rapturously malavisionary listeners. And welcome to this December 2015 Science News Update. I'm your host for this laughably ludicrous science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Well, a bunch of you out in podcast land have heard my plight. Yes, I finally got some email this month. And I salute the kindness of Matt Parsonage, Peter Hogberg, Dale Moore, Melissa Goddard, and Julian Hayes. Even better, all of you guys sent in story ideas, which is very cool. And I thank you for all of them. And one of these days, I have to do a segment where I just talk about stories from listeners. However, there are so many amazing science news stories to tell you this month that I will address only one of your suggestions and one that I considered pretty much the most amazing. Matt Parsonage asked an intriguing question about a topic that I frankly have missed entirely. Matt said in his email, quote, I am sure you know about it already. There is a Dr. Ritter out there who says he has a broad-spectrum antiviral super serum. From my basic cellular biology knowledge, it seems like it could be the penicillin of the virus world. He says the research has gone into the valley of death. How could something so possibly important be brushed under the carpet? He doesn't seem too phased that this has happened. Maybe you could enlighten us, please? The Draco thingy basically hunts down a viral infected cell in your body and causes cell death. It seems simple and effective, other than the problem of taking a dose for the common cold and not realizing you're infected with a myriad of other viruses and accidentally destroying half the cells in your body. Unquote. Wow, that's something. All right, I looked into it, and let me see if I can clarify this. Okay, so this Ritter guy is actually Dr. Todd Ryder of MIT's prestigious Lincoln Laboratory. So he's not really much of a crackpot. He works as part of the PANACEA program, uh, which stands for Pharmacological Augmentation of Non-Specific Nonspecific Antipathogen Cellular Enzymes and Activities. Ryder's Research Group has developed and demonstrated a novel, broad-spectrum antiviral approach called DRACO. DRACO stands for Double-Stranded RNA-Activated Caspase Oligomerizer. So Matt, you are absolutely right. DRACO selectively induces apoptosis, that's cell suicide, in cells containing any viral double-stranded RNA rapidly killing infected cells without harming uninfected cells. As a result, Draco should be effective against virtually all viruses, rapidly terminating a viral infection while minimizing the impact on the infected patient. In work reported in the journal Plus One, Ryder reported that Draco was effective against 15 different viruses that his team has so far tested in cells. This includes cold viruses, also known as rhinoviruses, H1N1 influenza strains, adenoviruses, a stomach virus, also known as a real virus, a poliovirus, dengue fever virus, and several members of the hemorrhagic fever family. Draco was also demonstrated to be non-toxic in 11 different cell types representing various species, that is monkeys, humans, mice, as well as being harmless against organ types. They tested heart and liver and lung and kidney. In addition, experiments demonstrated that Draco not only is non-toxic to mice, but can also save mice infected with a lethal dose of H1N1 influenza. Currently, the team is testing additional viruses in mice, and beginning to get promising results with those as well. Ryder says that although more extensive testing is needed, quote, Draco has the potential to revolutionize the treatment and prevention of virtually all viral diseases, including everything from the common cold to Ebola. Because the antiviral activity of Draco is so broad spectrum, we hope it may even be useful against outbreaks of new or mutated viruses, such as the 2003 SARS outbreak, unquote. I guess the Draco is selective for virus-infected cells. Again, just as Matt said. One difference between viral-infected and healthy cells is made primarily by the length and type of RNA transcription within the cell. You see, most viruses produce long, double-stranded RNA during transcription and replication. This indicates a sick cell. In contrast, uninfected animal cells generally produce double-stranded RNA, no longer than about 24 base pairs during transcription. So there is a big difference between the two, and that's what's used for targeting. Cell death is induced by one of the last steps in the apoptosis pathway in which complexes containing intracellular apoptosis signaling molecules all bind at the same time. These are called procaspases. Uh, A caspase is is a protease that destroys proteins. Procaspases are the inactivated version of the caspase enzyme. The procaspases are activated into caspases when they're cleaved, and then they further activate additional caspases in a cascade of reactions. Once activated, they cleave a whole variety of proteins that are needed by the cell to keep it alive, and so they kill the cell. I must say, It's absolutely brilliant. I'm still not sure entirely that this will work in an animal bigger than a mouse, or in anything but tissue culture, but it is absolutely brilliant. I await the human trials. If it does work, then I suspect it will be fairly harmless to humans. Yeah, okay, it may end up killing a bunch of cells for viral infections that you didn't know you had, but unlike our bacterial microfauna, which are an important part of our microecosystem. There is nothing good that viruses do for us. They are simply molecular parasites, and that is the beginning and the end of it. Any cell infected by a virus is one that we are well rid of. I'm more worried about the targeting mechanism for Draco. We frankly still do not know enough molecular biology, especially the brain, to be certain that there are not cells out there making long-chain RNAs, that are not absolutely needed for things like creating memory, aren't those cells susceptible to Draco targeting? I can just imagine, in the first human trials, we will discover that even though Draco cures the patient of all their viruses, they become brain-dead zombies, as a large proportion of their brain cells are apoptosed. Sorry, just a thought. Alright, it's a dark thought, but it's a thought. Thanks for the email, Matt. I'm sure lots of people will appreciate the new nightmare we've lent them. Next story. The one thing I liked best about Star Trek The Next Generation was always the deck. I thought it was a great idea to create solid holograms. Absurd, yes, but great. It was always a hoot to see Picard or Worf doing some sort of martial arts workout on the deck. Star Trek Next Gen was not the only science fiction show to pick up this theme. The later seasons of Red Dwarf gave the virtual body of crewman Arnold Rimmer a hard light drive, which I laughed at, despite the fact that it was not actually one of the jokes on the show. I won't even mention Jim and the Holograms. Blah. Anyway, I guess the laugh is now on me. Yes, someone has created a hologram projector, which allows you to actually touch and interact with the hologram. It's still pretty primitive, but that hard light hologram drive may be possible in the not-too-distant future. Dr. Yoichi Ochiai of Tsukuba University and his research group presented a paper on their work at the ACM meeting in August. Sorry, it's taken me a while to dig this one up. The presentation of the meeting was entitled, quote, Fairy Lights in Femtoseconds aerial and volumetric graphics rendered by focused femtosecond laser combined with computational holographic fields, unquote. What does that mean? Well, using extraordinarily fast lasers, called femtosecond lasers, the researchers developed fairy lights. This is a system that can fire high-frequency laser pulses that last a millionth of a billionth of a second. The pulses respond to human touch so that when interrupted, the hologram's pixels can be manipulated in midair. Other researchers have apparently done this before, but the trick that Ochiai apparently has pulled off is that the lasers he uses do not burn anybody's hands. Previously, it was impractical because the process actually burned flesh. Ochiai believes this technology can be used for entertainment, medicine, and architecture. He says that the current state of light technology does not allow humans to proactively interact and feel light as matter, but the touchable hologram has the potential to change that. OGI says, quote, you can't actually feel the videos or pictures, and although you can project a video, you can't interact with it by touching it. So if we can project an image in a three-dimensional form, and if you can touch it, then you can make something where you'll think that there actually is something there. He goes on to say, quote, people's lives would change if we use a bigger laser in a bigger space where people can interact with it and see how it can be used in situations where three-dimensional communication is necessary, such as a construction site or in the medical field, unquote. So the biggest investor in the touchable holograms is presently Playboy Tokyo, who say they want to start a series of tea rooms where the waitresses will all be blonde hard-light holograms who will cater to a salaryman's every beverage need. Really, just kidding. No, Playboy Tokyo is not interested in this technology. But yes, listeners, we are living in the future. Well, where do we go from here? Holodex and the cure for all viral infections. Aren't any other stories just going to be a letdown from here? Maybe, maybe not. How about creating wired-up electrical organisms? Is that not new and amazing? In the quest for tools that would offer finer control of plant physiology, a team led by Magnus Berggren from Linköping University in Sweden have created flexible circuits inside the stems and leaves of rosebud cuttings. The work published November 20th in the journal Science Advances may also lead to opportunities to harvest energy from the plant's natural biochemical processes, according to the report. Berggren formed the circuits using a conductive water-soluble polymer called 3,4-ethylene dioxythiophene. The researchers dissolved it in water and then placed a cut rose into the container. The rose took up the polymer in its xylem along with water, where the polymer was then visible when the researchers peeled back the top layer of plant matter from the stem. This is kind of like those uh, experiments you used to do in grade school where you would take a white carnation and drop it into water that had green or blue or red dye in it, and then you would see that the dye moved up the xylem and into the flower. Similar to that, I guess. Berggren says, There was a moment during the screening when my grad student showed us all these beautiful wires. When I saw those, I immediately understood it was possible to make electronic circuits inside the rose. Unquote. By attaching electronic probes to both ends of the wires, the researchers confirmed that the polymer structures could indeed conduct electricity along their lengths, and they used the wires to create a transistor. Bergen's team also used vacuum pressure to get leaves to take up a different polymer solution, creating a conductive network inside the plant tissue. The researchers could adjust the visible color of the resulting leaves by applying different voltages. Although this is all very cool, the actual application to living plants remains yet to be seen, although the authors are hopeful. Berggren says, quote, Previously we had no good tools for measuring the concentration of various molecules in living plants. Now we'll be able to influence the concentration of the various substances in the plant that regulate growth and development. Here I see great possibilities for learning more, unquote. So cool as it is, putting electrical circuits into a plant may be mostly a tool to help study plants and really not much more than that. Although frankly, it sounds very cool to me because I may be able to use that one of these days. Okay, let me try to up the cool factor a bit since we are finishing up the year here, okay? Next story may affect you directly, all right? This is amazing. How about an actual cure for the genetic disease of colorblindness? As I tell students in my medical genetics class, colorblindness affects more people than all other single-gene diseases combined. Yes, it is that common, and it's a mutation on the X chromosome. So any male out there who has the disease can thank their mom for it. Colorblindness affects approximately 1 in 12 men and 1 in 200 women. The condition is caused by abnormal photopigments, the color-detecting molecules residing in the retina's cone cells. A defect in one of the genes responsible for making photopigments results in an individual not having the specialized cones that respond to blue, green, or red light. And that lack significantly alters the way that people experience the world. Now, doctors Maureen and Jay Knight's of UC Berkeley University have cured colorblindness in primates. Over the years, the Knight's laboratory has developed a novel gene therapy that enabled them to add L-opsin into red-green colorblind primates who are missing the pigment gene that would allow them to see colors. They designed an adenoviral vector to carry the L-opsin gene along with transcriptional regulatory elements that would direct gene expression in green cones, but not in other retinal cell types. Jay Knights says, quote, what we did was infect a subset of green cones with the virus carrying the red gene. That red gene turns on and replaces the photopigment in that subset of cones, and you now have three different kinds of cones, like you see in an animal with normal color vision. In so doing, we restored full color vision to the animals." Unquote. To deliver the virus to monkeys, the Niteses collaborated with talented eye surgeons who injected the solution containing the virus into precise locations underneath the retina. Okay, frankly, the thought of that kind of treatment makes me kind of shudder. And Jay's comments make me shudder more. Quote, it's very delicate surgery, and it required three injections of the infusion over the whole back of the eye. It worked great, but it wasn't very practical. We've been working over the past five years with a tiny syringe with a very fine needle that could give a colorblind person a single shot in the eye in the doctor's office instead of in a surgical suite under general anesthesia. Cue the chorus of ewes. Let's see. Uh, Needle in the eye or colorblindness? It's such a difficult choice. So now they have this fine needle, and they can inject the virus directly into the retina quite easily, and it cures the monkeys. Next up, the clinical trials, and if that works, this will be a major genetic disease which could become part of the past. The Knights hope to start clinical trials in the next year or two, as well as extend the therapy to treat other eye disorders. The next story from this month's Journal of Experimental Biology is not quite as impressive as curing a genetic disease, but still kind of cool. The Devil's Hole Pupfish from the Mojave Desert is one of the rarest animals on Earth. The current wild population of the little fish is about 131 adults, and they are likely to be limited in their ability to grow their population naturally because they live in a dark cavern, which rather dramatically limits the amount of food that can grow there to support the fish. Dr. Frank Van Broekhulen of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, was curious to know how many pupfish the restricted ecosystem could actually sustain. However, before he could do the calculation, he needed to measure the scarce fish's metabolic rate. As the native devil hole pupfish population is too endangered to study directly, Van Broeckelen measured the metabolic rate of a refuge population of fish that has been established in his laboratory as an insurance policy should the population ever be wiped out. But when he performed the measurement, he came across a very strange puzzle. He recorded the fish's oxygen consumption at temperatures ranging from 25 degrees Celsius to 38 degrees Celsius. And he found that they consumed oxygen at a pretty stable rate of about 300 microliters an hour when they came from a population that had been raised at 28 degrees Celsius. However, when he measured the oxygen consumption rate of fish raised at 33 degrees, that's the temperature in the devil's hole spring. Something went wrong. The fish appeared to stop consuming oxygen. Van Broecklen said, quote, My initial reaction was that there was a malfunction in the electrode. But after testing 295 animals, we had to concede that the phenomenon was real. The fish were somehow switching from aerobic metabolism to anaerobic metabolism, unquote. When I teach cell physiology, one of the topics is aerobic versus anaerobic metabolism. Aerobic metabolism is primarily used by cells, especially in animals, because it nets huge numbers of ATPs, large amounts of energy when sugar is broken down. Anaerobic metabolism, which occurs when there's very little oxygen or no oxygen, is nowhere near as effective as aerobic metabolism. It yields only about one-fifteenth the amount of ATP per glucose molecule generated by aerobic metabolism, and it can only occur in small organisms. So why would the fish do this? Why switch to a system that gets you so little energy? Intrigued, Van Broeckelen and his team tested whether the phenomenon was a result of the lab fish population breeding with another closely related species. It wasn't. The closely related species to the devil's whole pup fish, acting in exactly the same way. They tested a whole series of hypotheses, trying to explain what the phenomenon was and why it was working the way it worked. And all of them proved absolutely wrong. Until, Van Broecklin says, quote, we were going nuts trying to figure out what triggers anaerobic metabolism in these fish it finally occurred to them that maybe the fish were switching to anaerobic metabolism to avoid the toxic side effects of aerobic metabolism. What is the toxic side effect? Well, the main one is producing ethanol. They knew that the 33 degree acclimated fish naturally produced high levels of ethanol, seven times more than the fish from the cooler water, could the ethanol be switching off aerobic energy production and stalling oxygen consumption? How would they test this? Well, they decided to get the fish drunk. When the team added ethanol to the fish's water, even the fish that were adapted to cooler water temperatures switched to this, what they called paradoxical anaerobism. So, ta-da! The devil's whole pupfish Switch off aerobic metabolism to avoid the toxic alcoholic side effects of an aerobic lifestyle, despite the fact that it comes at the expense of making way less energy. All right, last story of the night. Here is a question. Are male and female brains the same, or are they different? This has been argued back and forth for years, and I suspect it will continue to be argued back and forth, even long after the story that I'm going to talk to you about tonight. Some people would argue that there are absolute differences between the male and the female brain. Many of those are based on experience and stories and things like that. The authors of the next research that I'm going to tell you about would, well, frankly, they would disagree with that conclusion. Dr. Daphna Joel of Tel Aviv University has written a research paper this month in the Proceedings of the National Academy, entitled Sex Beyond Genitalia, the Human Brain Mosaic. To test the theory that there are physical disparities between male and female brains, Joelle and her colleagues looked for differences in brain scans taken from 1,400 people, aged 13 to 85. The team looked for variations in the size of brain regions, as well as the connections between them. In total, the group identified... 29 brain regions that generally seem to be different sizes in self-identified males and females. These include the hippocampus, which is involved in memory, and the inferior frontal gyrus, which is thought to play a role in risk aversion. When Joel looked at each individual brain scan, she found that very few people had all of the brain features that they might expect to have based on their sex. Across the sample, only about 4% of the people examined had all-male or all-female brains, depending on the definition. Quote, most people are in the middle, unquote, says Joel. This means that, averaged across many people, sex differences in brain structure do exist, but an individual brain is likely to be just that, an individual, with a mix of features. Joelle makes it quite clear in this statement. She says, quote, There are not two types of brains, unquote. Although the team only looked at brain structure and not function, their findings suggest that we all lie along a continuum of what are traditionally viewed as male and female characteristics. The study is very helpful in providing biological support for something that lots of scientists have suspected for a long time, that brain gender is not binary, this is why my daughter can love dolls and dressing up in pretty bright clothes, but she loves just as much roughhousing with her brother and Star Wars lightsaber battles. Human brains are not necessarily biased in one direction or another. Being male or female is far more complex than what we have traditionally understood and accepted in the past. Joel says, quote, Despite persisting stereotypes... Statistics show that girls are no better or worse than boys at science and math. People get wedded to the idea that being male or female is highly predictive of having different attitudes or aptitudes or career choices. This study fights against the idea that these outcomes are based on biological differences as opposed to cultural expectations, unquote. Joelle concludes with, I envision a future in which individuals are not so routinely classified based on gender alone. We separate girls and boys, men and women all the time. It's wrong, not just politically, but scientifically. Everyone is different. Unquote. I guess that the hope is that Joel's findings can be used to help people better understand the non binary nature of gender. Life is complicated and getting more complex all the time. Remember that. Even if you identify as male or female and your body matches, some people don't identify as either male or female at all. Others seem to feel their gender identity shift over time. And still others have gender dysphoria from an early age where their physical body and mental gender state don't match. Yes, Caitlin, we're talking about you. Because of this complexity, we need to start thinking a lot more carefully about how much weight we give to gender as a defining feature of a human being. Yes, gender becomes important when you're choosing a public toilet, but we have to ask ourselves when gender becomes entirely irrelevant to a question. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Keep those needles away from your eyeball unless you want to see what true colors Cindy Lauper was talking about. Keep those pupfish in cool water to prevent drunken brawls. Be careful in defining your binaries, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
2: Jim always inspires me there. Jim, what can I say? Big Ten years we've been going this year, and you've been there kind of <laughs> Nearly that long as well doing doing science news update. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you. It onwards forever onwards. <laughs> so next up is like I said, Jeremy is taking over the reins of the interviews this week, and it's a great interview. And I wouldn't mind if you kind of popped over there and just kind of took notice and kind of you know took out a little subscription to them mothership Zeta, and it's from the stable of escape pods and you know yes i'm harping on 10 years and all that but it was like escape pod honestly that kind of you know there was no other any venues like this there was nothing you know doing a podcast before really escape pod that i was aware of do you know what i mean and it kind of once kind of sarah Ely kind of took on the mic there and took over you know what i mean it's just awe-inspiring and like i said you know take it on now is Alistair Stewart who's kind of took over and, you know, who's now having to make a go and, you know, make sure it runs, you know what I mean? And he's took on all the responsibilities. Go on, Alistair. And I like Alistair. I think, you know, again, he's been doing the, you know, pseudopod there for bloody years and years and years. And I think me and Alistair in the kind of real world will get on quite, you know, he's got that kind of sense of humor. We've spoken to each other a, a, a couple of times, you know what I mean? doing things and working things and like that and I'm really proud of them you know what I mean The kind of to have the energy to have the kind of the, the balls and the gumption and all sorts of kind of you know keep on going that's what I love about it you know what I mean and I'm kind of into all that as well so this is Jeremy like I say a final interview for 2015. Hello everyone it's not Tony
0: this time Unfortunately, it's me, Jeremy Zal, the assistant editor here at Starship Sofa, and today we are interviewing Karen Bovenmeyer, the assistant editor over at Mothership Zeta, the latest podcast from the Escape Artist, the one who brought us Escape Pod, PodCastle, and Pseudopod. So, thank you very much for coming to the show today, Karen.
3: Oh, well, thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, no worries. So, there's already the Escape Artists. Why create another venue? What makes Mothership Zeta unique?
3: Well, Mothership Zeta is an e-zine, and as an e-zine, it, it's a, a magazine, and so it falls into uh, a lot of the categories for different awards and um, sort of like more prestige for, our, for authors, because um, with Escape Pod and Pseudopod and PodCastle, we've been accepting um, original pieces of work to, to publish there. And so, um, some people have said there's still a little bit of a stigma about publishing originally in a podcast, and we want to give people much more more chances to have original fiction published in an e-zine. And something else that's unique about Mothership's Ada is our focus is fun and uplifting speculative fiction, so science fiction, fantasy, and horror. It's like fun and uplifting, so... There's kind of also a stigma that if something is really good and really award-worthy, it also might be sad or just, like, really a, a downer or emotionally traumatizing. <laughs> Although, you know, sometimes when a story makes me cry super hard, like Ken Liu, um, <laughs> it's, it's still really, really good. But we uh, have read really great stuff that's also fun and uplifting, and that's what we want to celebrate in Mothership Zeta, is fun and uplifting, really good science fiction, fantasy, and horror.
0: Yeah, I think there is a lack of uh, stories that tend to tend to be more fun and uplifting. I think Alex Schwartzman's uh, UFO series is one of the only other ones that actually focus on fun and uplifting yeah. stuff. So yeah, it's really great that you've uh, trying to mine that niche. Like the, we've always got another angle to cover. So I just want to ask, like, other than that, like, what are you guys especially after? I know you said fun stuff, but what's your uh, what's your definition? Do you mean more adventure? Do you mean more humorous? What's your take?
3: It could be anything. Like, we have stories just all across the board uh, that we've bought for this coming year. Um, And in our first issue, you can really see a a great mix of fantasy, science fiction, um, and even some horror that we have found to be fun and uplifting. Um, (laughs) Horror tends to be more fun than (laughs) uplifting sometimes. Um, But, like, it could be anything. Somebody could submit... Uh, something that you know they're like, oh, I'm just not sure. you know let us let us be the judge of that. Um, we love just to see a, a lot of variety.
0: Yeah, so basically like not to uh, self-reject, basically just send those little stories yeah. that don't fit anywhere. Yeah like it's one, it's one of those rare ones like you get these stories that you see them all across in magazines that like they don't seem to conform to any genre or subgenre they just are. <laughs> so it's, it's good that there's something covering them. And yeah, we
3: do kind of tend to map to stories that probably would have trouble being finding another place because they're a little quirky and a little different, and that that would that would be probably a good fit to send us send us your quirky, different, fun, uplifting thing.
0: Yeah, and I just want to ask as well, um, since you are print and you're not audio, that means you can take uh, you can take advantage of. Magazine, uh, sorry, stories that tend to be a little more experimental or stories that play with formatting. That's something that audio can't do because they don't always translate well. So are you guys after stories that lean towards you more experimental or like have different formatting or tell a different, uh, tell a story different in a chronological order, that sort of thing? Are you guys after that?
3: Um... Not explicitly, like we haven't made that an explicit thing that we've talked about in editorial staff meetings, but um, we did buy a story that was a Q&A where you only get the uh, A, so it's uh, in our, it's on our issue that's out right now, it's an, it's an AI love story, these two AIs are in love, and one AI is getting like grilled by an official and you can't hear any of the officials' questions. It's just the AI's answers. Hmm. And it's an amazing story. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and we also have one that is a transcript of a person that's providing customer assistance for these robots that have had a little bit of a mix-up. <laughs> and that's a really interesting format, too. So, I mean, I guess...
0: Yeah, like, the obviously, those stories sound pretty interesting. And although they can be translated into audio... It would... Like, it. sometimes there are stories that just don't get the full experience. You just won't be able to get this stuff They will get left out if you're not seeing it in print. And so, like, I think there's definitely a great angle to cover. And speaking of experimental stuff, is there any memorable experiences reading Slush? Anything that stood out to you?
3: Um, well, reading... I have to say reading Slush for Mother Should Seda is a lot of fun. <laughs> um... I read for Nightmare, John Joseph Adams' Nightmare for two mm. years. And that's, there's definitely different stories that are coming in <laughs> <laughs> comparatively. Um, and I also do slush reading for Best American Science Fiction, mm. um, which is stuff that's already published. Um, but yeah, reading reading from Rothership Sado, just like, you know, you don't know what you're going to open up, but you know that it's the chances are it's going to be really fun. Um, and so, I don't know, they're just, lots of stories left me with uh, really great feelings as we read through we had uh, 835 stories submitted to us during our two-week open period in the summer um, and we we bought a lot of them um, my job I was the uh, slush editor manager and so they called me the slush wrangler <laughs> and so I had nine people working uh, for me uh, helping go through these stories and um, and so stories that were really good would make it through the slush and would go to us as an editing team. And Sunil Patel is our um, assistant editor of Fiction. And so he would read a story and, it's, and when he wasn't sure whether or not he should pass the story up to Murr Lafferty, who's our editor-in-chief, he would send the story to me and my other like title was The Maybe Moderator. And so I would then read a story and, you know, sort of, like, make the judgment, saying, yeah, this is really, really interesting and unique and fun, and I think it needs to go up to Murr, because I think Murr's going to love this. Um, and so, I don't know, it's just it's just really fun. It's really fun to work with those guys, and really, really fun to read all the, you know, incredibly creative stuff that people were sending in.
0: mm yeah, there's a lot of really great stuff out there, and it's a shame that you can't publish it all. It, pu- publish it at all. I'm sure you've uh, ran into a lot of stories that you like, you loved, but you just there weren't there just wasn't the room, or you just couldn't fit it in.
3: I know. Well, in stories that like two people would submit a story that was pretty similar. Yeah, yes, yes. You know that they don't know each other, and you know that this, you know, but you're like, oh, this is so, you know, oh, and then you have to pick one, and yeah. it's just like, oh, this is so horrible <laughs> because we love them both. But I don't know, we've also, we also bought like multiple Lovecraft stories and multiple stories about AIs and just, you know, like if there's a story that's really good, we're going to buy it. (laughs) You know, even if we have one that's, you know, kind of similar to, you know, like I think people shouldn't worry too much about whether or not they're following a trend. You know, just send us your, your really good stuff. We're going to, we're going to buy it if, you know, it fits mothership.
0: Yeah, I think it was Ellen Datlow, actually on Starship Surfer, who said that it's not the trope, it's not, it's what you do with it. And what yeah. you just... De- yeah, you described the, those two um, those two AI stories that sound very, very different. And so I think, yeah, it's it's which angle you take it from, obviously. So how did you process eight hundred over 800 submissions in six <laughs> weeks? How many stories did you have to read a day?
3: Well, um... What I wanted was I I wanted to make sure that nobody was reading more than five stories a day. And so as the numbers started growing and are submittable, I started asking more people to come on to our staff uh, to help us with our first rush. Um, And so these are seasoned writers that, you know, we know through different venues and people that I thought would be really good at Slush reading or people who had slush read before for other companies or other venues that I knew of, people that were diverse in age and in lifestyle and in writing style, like I wanted to have this was really diverse, strong team. And we wouldn't have made it without them. I mean, they were just amazing. And um, I asked them to read five stories a day, and then inside our submittable, I, sub- I split it up between them and tried to keep it pretty fair about who was getting assigned what, um, and then some people would, you know, read way more than five a day. So some of our more experienced editors who'd been slushing for a long time could read a story pretty fast and be like, meh. You know, like they, they made their choices really quickly. And when one came through those two guys, we knew, okay, you know, she liked this one. This is really something special and because they were pretty tough. <laughs> and so, I don't know, yeah, just like, the help of our team is what made us able to get processed through that so quickly.
0: Yeah. And you guys, you pick fantasy, science fiction, and horror, but do you lean to more, more towards any of them?
3: Um, me personally or us as a team?
0: Uh, both actually. Why not both?
3: Okay. Well, I tend to write horror, personally, and publish in horror. Um, I like to read horror, but I think my main leaning is toward sort of fantasy is my natural, like, I want to sit down and relax, I'm going to read fantasy. Um, but I also really love sci-fi space exploration. Um, and Just, that's really cool. And so, I guess Mur and Sunil are both kind of in the same boat. They love, you know, fun and funny stuff, and, and uh, they've both published all over the board, between those two areas in three areas as well but i have to say from looking at the stories that we've purchased that you're going to see coming out in this next year it's a little bit science fiction heavier than the others i mean we have like some interesting fun demon stuff and some cool superhero things coming out and some definitely some stuff that's fantasy um, we got some horror uh, But it's really hard to write fun and uplifting horror <laughs> So, you know, there's there's sort of less horror going on uh, Because, you know, Cabin in the Woods is And, you know, Gremlins and stuff Those Evil are pretty Dead. unique y- Evil <laughs> pretty
0: Dead unique kinds of Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that Like, how Unless you're doing Evil Dead 2, not Evil Dead 1 How <laughs> do you do, like, make funny horror? I mean, like I think a, what's it called, like the the killer unicorn will probably be (laughs) across the board. But other than that, how do you do funny
2: horror?
3: Oh, my God. Yeah, I love Army of Darkness. So, yeah, like, okay, funny horror. It it definitely has to be probably social commentary is going to be one of the Mm. quickest ways to make it you know, funny, like, kind of tongue-in-cheek, here's where we're making this commentary on this. But it can still be, like, really dark, deep, and emotional. You know, like, Joss Whedon has lots Mm. of funny horror examples, not just, you know, the Cabin in the Woods example, but, you know, just kind of that, like, really smart, sort of tongue-in-cheek, modern way of really strong character building where they're going, you know, what is this situation? Maybe self-referential can be pretty funny, too. So, but, you know, like there was a trend that, you know, I don't want to encourage people (laughs) to send us tons of stuff that's really funny because some of the things that we read were funny, but they didn't have a deeper thing to them. And so, and by that, I mean like a deeper theme. So when we get 50 stories that are funny and fun, but don't have like a deeper, more meaningful threads to them. Like we'll get the fifty first that that's fun and funny and has that deeper theme and deeper meaningful thread. That story we're going to be like, oh, you know, this is interesting because it's different. So those things like will pull our eye the differences. So I don't know. Like I encourage people, write, write. You're funny. You're fun. You're weird. You're offbeat. You're kind of crazy thing. And send send it to us. Um, but you know, make sure it's the best that you've got. You know, give us your best.
0: Mm. So you're basically not. So anyone who's listening, don't just like throw your chunk stories in here, or well, Karen will get angry. Is that basically?
3: <laughs> or one of the, one of my team of nine. The team will get <laughs> one angry. Of oh, nine you dude, don't want to assigned you.
0: You don't want to piss off Sunil, That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Any of the team. So out of everything here, is there anything that you're absolutely sick to death of seeing that you never want to see again? Uh,
3: no, not really. <laughs> I mean, like. It's, it's like, you, like you were talking about, like like Ellen Dotlow said. It's what you do with the story. You know, they say every story has ever been written. You know, every story ever has already been written. Um, it's how your life experiences and you and your voice and how you see this and your current time in life, like, existing on the planet right now and the flow of time that we are and the technology that we are with the grappling with the questions that we're grappling with as a species... It's different than it was last decade. You know, like, I feel like everybody has some kind of unique thing that they can bring to a story, even one that's been tried a bunch of times. So I would encourage people, you know, don't don't let yourself be shied away from something that you think, oh, well, they've probably seen this a million times. Like, no, i say jump in and play with it. See what you can do with it. Because mm. we saw some really... Really unique stuff, and you know it's a joy to read whether we buy it or not. You know, you know we're having a great time reading it, and you know we try and tell you that when we write letters back to you. You know how how your story helped us feel. So and say yeah, don't 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 uh, self reject. Don't self reject ideas either.
0: Yeah, this is something actually Rachel Sarisky talked about on the show uh, about actually almost a year ago now that there are some stories that. um they're like they're unique but they don't tend to do anything like you'll read like they obviously like they're the unique and they have a new angle on it but how does that what is that for you what does that match up to the stories that are good and they're well written and they've great characters and there's a great voice but they're not particularly unique but well, this other unique uh, story doesn't have that great writing doesn't have that great character how do you balance it out does the unique story win in the end
3: um Gosh, that's a hard one. It is. I I I can think of several examples that I read, and I was like, oh, you know, the story got me right in the feels. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, yes. And uh, it it ended up being fun and or uplifting by the end. um, It had, you know, pretty good characterization. It had a pretty good storyline. But, you know, it was missing just kind of like this magic something that helped everything gel and come Mm. together. And, like, some stories I read, and I'm like, boy this story just needed one more pass-through by this person's writing group you know or just that one more suggestion from the cousin that they have read all their stuff to just tweak it a little bit and make it you know ever all those pieces gel together but when I read a story that I know I'm like oh god this has to go to Sunil, or oh my gosh this has to go to mer straight to mer because it's amazing mm-hmm. you know like I, I know when I read those stories because I just I can just feel it because everything just comes together and it's, it's unique, or, or even, you know, the things that are unique about it are, are uh, just really special. So we had one story that, we're, that we published um, in our first... When it first came through, we could tell it was by a non-native speaker of English. And so um, that story came through, and it had a couple of, you know, grammatical errors in it that we would have... Uh, ordinarily said, oh, well, maybe this is not a sign of professionalism, but that wasn't it at all. It's just how English is used in that country. Mm. And as we read the story, it was just so, so incredible and so rich. And it opened up this like, whole corner of uh, an African country that you know, had, we'd never been to before with superheroes and just such a great story. You know, and, and as we're reading through it, we're like, oh, boy, you know, I don't know. It's a little dark. But it still it has the uplifting to it, and uh, it's just really unique, and, you know, that story just really won us over as we discussed it in editorial. So, you know, every story is different, you know, we, we, we have these discussions, like, really deep discussions about, about the stories.
0: Yeah, and sounds, sounds like you do. So, well, actually, you've got quite an ambitious, ambitious project going on. What's next for you guys? Like, what do what you see happening in the future?
3: Well, we hope to grow Mothership Zeta and continue to offer it. Uh, It's quarterly right now. Um, We're hoping that that might someday increase. uh, Of course, it depends on subscriptions. It's available to be subscribed to via waitlist. Um, But, yes, we're hoping to grow Mothership Zeta and publish more fun and uplifting stories, publish more things, pay authors the professional rate, You know, and so that's kind of our plan, is to just grow this as much as we can.
0: Yeah, excellent, and I hope you do. So, uh, Mothership Zeta is actually quarterly now. Issue 2 will be coming out on the 29th of January, and you guys will be opening up to submissions in May and in November, is that correct? Correct. Right, and if you guys are listening now, if you want to get played on Starship Sofa, send your stories along to Mothership Zeta, and maybe you'll have a chance. uh, Everyone wins. You get your story yeah. published there. It gets played here. All right. Uh, Mothership Zeta, we're out of time, but you can pick up Mothership Zeta on Waitlist, uh, Amazon, and Smashwords. And if you guys are going to Confusion, you can meet Merlin and Sunil there and uh, chat to them and maybe reference his interview for a cookie. Uh, I'll link up Mothership mm-hmm. Zeta and all this other stuff so you can check them out. Karen, thank you so much for joining us here today, and I hope you, it all goes well for you.
3: Thank you. Thanks yeah. very much. No
0: worries
2: there you go all links will be there if you want to pop over and support mothership zeta that would be actually fantastic so next up is and it is kind of the final part of this science fiction broadcast we have julian of earth by colin p davies and i'll give you a like in a heads up about Colin. Originally the story was originally published in Asimov's Do you know what I mean no stronger magazine is out there in my eyes. Colin P. Davies lives near Liverpool, England and has been contributing to the science fiction and fantasy magazines for 25 years. Come toil, blood, sweat and tears, Colin. His stories have appeared in Asimov's science fiction, Abbas and Apex, Andromeda Spaceways, Daily Science Fiction and Elsewhere. His story of the Defenders was included in the year's best science fiction, 22, edited by Gardner Dozwoz. Colin is currently working on a third novel of his young adult comic fantasy trilogy, Clifford and the Book Bookmole. For more information, you can pop over to colindavies.com and check him out. And like I say, a big thank you for Colin coming on Starship so far as well. This story is narrated by Sarah Affa. Sarah was born and raised in the United States and moved to Australia in 2009. She has years of experience doing public speaking as well. <laughs> Teach me a few things there. Experience in public speaking as well as reading poetry and prose for competitions. Wow, go on man. I could never do that. Yes, she is a talker. She enjoys singing, reading, adventure and ad- adventuring the world with her new husband. Where to go Sarah? Congratulations. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
7: Julian of Earth by Colin P. Davies when Tarn Erstbauer saw the incoming ship score its white trail across the intensely indigo sky, he jammed the hammer into his belt and slid down the roof tiles to the ladder. In the kitchen, Mother Lily sat at the table stoning bright berries. She barely glanced up as Tarn rushed in, rinsed his hands at the sink and freshened his face. A ship, Muti, he said. Could be customers, with any luck. We could sure use some. He dried his hands on the threadbare towel and watched for a response. When she did not reply, he tossed the cloth over a chair and hurried upstairs for his uniform. In his room, he changed into matching Viridian shirt and trousers, knotted a red kerchief, and donned the peaked black cap with the gold Julian logo, a bayonet crossed with a bayonet bush leaf. "'You are expert, tour guide.' "'The mirror screwed to the back of the door told him he looked the part. "'He ran a hand over his chin. "'Did he need a shave? "'No, he did not want to appear too fresh-faced. "'As he sat and laced up his comfortable tan boots, "'he gazed out of the small window. "'The jungle was a green and copper chaos "'that started at the lane that marked the edge of their field.' and ended over the horizon and halfway around the planet. Nizel, the star they called Sun, hung high over the house, and neat, the ovoid moon, was a pale smudge low in the humid haze that hovered forever over the jungle. Possibly twelve kilometers distant, a disk of white cloud marked the location of Black Lake, a home of the indigenous primes, and also legend had it of Julian of Earth. Tarn released a slow breath. That jungle could be dangerous, but it was also his livelihood. Returning downstairs, he found his mother out in the garden peering at the sky. His words must have made an impact, though at times it was hard to tell. He took her elbow, and she leaned ever so slightly in his direction. Muti, I have to go. He brushed strands of white hair away from her squinting eyes. It's time you let Jenny sort your hair again. She continued to gaze up at the blue. I have to go to town. I'll be back later. He jumped into his yellow ten-seater tour bus, cursing himself for not getting around to hosing down the mud spatters after last week's rainstorm, and started it up. The engine coughed and ejected gray smoke. He reversed up the gravel lane, turned sharply by the water tower, and set off towards town. The narrow dirt road took him along the edge of the jungle. To his left lay the cultivated fields, the farms that mined wealth from the rich soil. At his right was the jungle, thick, mysterious, and largely unexplored. To the rest of the colonists on Nizel 5, the jungle was the enemy, advancing, encroaching and unwelcome. For Tarn, the jungle was a vital source of income. Not that he liked it, or his role in the events that had made his hometown, Dorf, the hub of curiosity-seekers and indolent adventurers. He had told the story so many times that he no longer felt a thrill at the rapt gaze of the listeners. He was unmoved by their empathy as he told the tale of how, at the age of eight, he had been snatched from the edge of the jungle by Julian of Earth, the legendary imperial soldier who would not accept that the war had been over for a decade. Honor and suspicion drove Julian to continue the fight against the revolutionaries. From his home in the depths of the jungle, he would strike out to disrupt and destroy. Those twenty-seven hours with Julian had changed Tarn, changed his entire life. He told the tourists of his fear, his tears. He described how he witnessed Julian, as cold and calm as an assassin, strangle a leader of the primes and enlist the brood to his service. Some would tell Tarn that he should feel privileged, Few had seen Julian, and those who claimed sightings had often proved to be unreliable witnesses. He told them he did not feel privileged. Over the years, the sightings had dwindled. Now, fifteen years on, most assumed that Julian was as dead as Earth's claims on the Niselle system— "'Legends, though, do not die as easily, "'and a steady stream of the curious and wealthy kept Tarn in business. "'He drove the bus faster. "'Grayshanks scattered from the track squealing, "'pounding their ponderous wings as he bounced the bus from dip to dome. "'The suspension squealed, but Tarn kept up the pace. "'These days new springs were easier to find than tourists.' A movement inside a dense stand of red hookwood trees wrenched Tarn from his thoughts. He braked to a stop and pressed his face to the glass. From the shadows stepped a creature the height of a small man, a biped, russet-haired and dappled black. The young Prime walked with the gait of a chimp, but this was no ape. The khaki cloth belt at its waist was evidence of that together with the spiked pole it now waved in his direction. He recognized the creature by the black arrowhead patch on its large forehead. This same Prime had observed him many times before. Tarn was unsure whether these appearances were greetings or threats, but they only happened when he was on his own. His tour groups were very lucky to ever spy a Prime. He drove off again, In his mirror, the creature watched until the bus turned away from the jungle to sweep down into the...
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
2: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com.
4: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Town.
7: The small silver ship had landed on Prefect Peterson's field as bylaws demanded. Peterson prided himself on his strict adherence to law and honor, a code that led him to check on Tarn's mother every month a promise made long ago to his friend, Tarn's father. Tarn and the prefect had shared an, at times, troubled relationship. By the time Tarn parked the bus under the broken neon of the squat circular diner, the new arrivals had been processed, and a young woman and two men now stood beside their bags on the sidewalk in the early afternoon sun. Tarn leaned on the steering wheel and waited. "'Would they come his way, "'or were they just more agricultural officials and trade inspectors? "'He took a mint nut from his pocket and placed it between his teeth, "'hesitated, then dropped it back into his palm "'as the short, slim woman left her companions and skipped his way. "'He pushed open the creaking door and climbed out of the bus. "'As she ran up, he nodded a greeting.' She smiled up at him. He was not a particularly tall young man, but she only reached his shoulders. She pointed a finger at the crossed bayonet logo on his cap. Tarn Erstbauer, I'd guess. Tarn took off his cap and ran a hand over his short black hair. Yes. Perfect. She waved to her companions, who picked up the bags and came over. You want the tour? said Tarn. She beamed. More than that. Her hair was startling red and swept back behind her ears in an exotic city style. By contrast, she was dressed in a sober brown suit and white shirt. We'll need a hotel. You're staying? A few days at least. It depends on you. One of her companions, a stocky, mop-headed man with snake tattoos on his cheeks, was holding a camera and proceeded to record the conversation. I'll explain, she said. Tarn donned his cap and pulled the peak down low. He didn't like being filmed. Go ahead. I'm putting together a feature on the Julian of Earth legend, a documentary. It fascinates me. It fascinates a lot of people. Not everyone believes it's true. But you know it is, she said with confidence. And so do I. He examined her eyes. They were gold and intense, beautiful, with lashes also in gold and longer than any he'd ever seen, even on TV. You are not from our system. No, we're from Earth. I'm Anna Walcott Winter. She took his hand and shook it. Winter by name, but summer by nature. Her hand was small and warm, and Tarn took a moment too long, releasing it. "'I've never met anyone from Earth. "'Apart from Julian.' "'Of course.' He leaned back against the bus. "'You've come a long way, Anna. "'You must be well-financed, or very keen, or both.' All of that and more. I'm rich, embarrassingly so. And I'm Julian's great-granddaughter. Tarn could not find a response. I've spent the last five years researching my great-grandfather, she said. Earth years, though that's hardly different from yours. I learned about his days in the cadets, his decorated service against the grim guardians, and the stories reaching us from Nizel Five. I've wanted to meet you for a long time. Welcome to the tour. I want more than the tour, as I said. I want to retrace the route from when Julian kidnapped you all the way back to his hide at Black Lake. If it's possible, I want to find him and bring him home. But whatever happens, it's an adventure and we'll make a great documentary. You do realize just where the lake is. "'in the thick of the jungle. "'I was eight. "'As I've told everyone, I can't remember the route. "'It was too long ago, and everything looks the same in there. "'If she was disheartened, she did not show it. "'She took a case from her second companion, flicked it open, "'and removed a yellow canvas cap, "'a bulky object penetrated by wires and coils. "'Everything does not really look the same.' It's all there in your memories. This cap will tease them out and help you find the path. Alarm was a tightness in his chest. Oh, uh, do I get a say in this? Whether we are successful in finding Julian or not, you'll still get more money than you can imagine. Or maybe you can imagine a hundred thousand dollars. And I'll make ten times that. We all win. "'Tarn considered his options. "'He could say no. "'He was not obliged to help. "'But could he say no to so much money? "'The farm was barely self-sufficient for food, "'the furnace was on its last legs, "'and the roof leaked so frequently "'that he'd tied the ladder permanently to the gutter. "'It might even be possible to find medical help for his mother. "'There must be someone in the city. "'He'd never had the chance before.' And at the very least, they would be able to live better, more comfortably. Maybe he should let Anna rummage through his memories to search for that route. But there was one problem. One huge problem. Tarn's kidnapping at gunpoint, Julian's killing of the prime leader and adoption of the brood, "'Tarn's entire traumatic adventure with the loyal soldier from Earth. "'The whole thing was a lie. "'At the age of eight, trouble comes easily, "'but escape strategies are limited, "'especially when you have to think fast. "'Not for the first time, Tarn had been where he should not have been, "'exploring the fringe of the jungle, "'searching between the fronds and the bush ferns for mint nuts "'and the chance to catch a glimpse of the elusive primes.' He knew the rules, and he knew the reason for the rules. Yet even the fear of his father's anger failed to keep him away. The nuts were currency in school, and his possession of so many raised his status higher than the cut of his clothes. Nuts could only be gathered inside the jungle, as greyshanks and hawks would snatch up all the buds at the accessible edge. So possession was a badge of courage. How could he not gather nuts? the day had been nothing unusual home from school in the early afternoon a few brief chores and now out under the lazy hazy sun his shoes sank into soil still damp from the overnight storm the breeze blew sour with waxwort from the neighbor's field against all instruction he had leapt the wire fence and crossed the lane to the edge of the jungle after half an hour he already had a small cloth bag near filled with nuts from two brief forays into the undergrowth, and was preparing for a third when he spotted something gleaming in a gap between two hook trees. The ground dropped just here, a prime path worn down by the centuries. Cautiously he moved into the dimness, following the path skirting the hanging hooks that would have snagged his shirt. The ground was uneven, soft with gullies and holes. The smell was of old, moist leaves. He kept his focus on the bright reflection at the base of an intruding beam of sunlight. Leaving the path, Tarn scrambled up a slippery incline and leaned over the object. It was silver metal and resembled a belt or bag buckle. He turned it over in his hand, rubbed it with his thumb. It was fine quality and had just one simple pattern at the center. Two circles, one large and one small, close together but not touching. The meaning eluded him. He slipped it into his trouser pocket and stood to peer back towards the road. His feet went from under him. He bounced, tumbled through cascading mint nuts, and plunged into the knife-edged leaves of a bayonet bush, and his head hit something hard. When he awoke... He was lying at the side of the road with the headlamps of a car in his eyes. Someone touched his arm and he realized that his head hurt like hell. He had lost twenty-seven hours. "'I can see the scar, but what about the buckle?' said Anna. Tarn ran a finger down the bayonet brush scar that still marked his right cheek. That injury was a powerful proof to his tourists of the ruthlessness of Julian. He told them it had been a warning delivered with a blade. Next time it will be your throat. Do you still have it? she asked. She sat on the edge of the bed, transferring her few belongings into a small chest of drawers. Yes, but back home. Anna's hotel room was sparse but clean. Will you be okay here? "'I'm sure you're used to better.' "'She halted her unpacking, smiled. "'Maybe I could see it tomorrow.' "'Sure, I'll bring the bus here at nine. "'She stood and slipped her brown jacket down her arms, "'dropped it on the bed. "'Her tight, white shirt made her eyes somehow more golden, "'so much so that Tarn found he was staring.' "'What was it like?' she asked. "'Huh? "'Meeting Julian.' "'You make it sound like a social event. "'I was scared.' "'So you aren't scared of meeting him again?' "'I hadn't really thought about it. "'He might be flattered that you've based your outfit on his uniform,' "'she flicked Tarn's red kerchief. "'Then again, he might not be so pleased.' "'Oh, it's not for his benefit. I'm selling an image to customers. "'Everything about my appearance is carefully calculated for effect,' he held her gaze. "'Surely I don't have to tell you that.' "'She laughed and shook her head. "'And I thought you were just a simple farm boy.' "'I am.' "'What do people do here after dark?' "'Anna pulled back a curtain. Sunlight revealed floating dust.' "'Drink, mostly,' Tarn shrugged. "'Or work?' "'Drink it is, then.' "'She threw back her head so that the red hair fanned and flamed. "'For now I'll grab some rest "'and then sample your local delicacies at the diner across the street.' "'She unfastened the belt to her trousers and halted "'and turned her pale face towards him. "'Is there anything you'd recommend?' "'Eat in the hotel?' She laughed. (laughs) Thanks. Tarn stood in the doorway. Something about Anna confused him. A pleasant confusion. Her smile. Somehow it made him smile too. Tomorrow then, she said. At nine. Okay. And bring the buckle. Young Tarn knew that lying was a risk. "'But what was he expected to tell his parents? "'That he'd done exactly as they had forbidden? "'That he'd knocked himself unconscious for twenty-seven hours? "'They'd been frantically searching for him. "'The whole town had been out to help. "'They'd been up and down that road so many times, "'and then suddenly there he was, confused, cut and bleeding, "'and with a lump the size of a fist on his head. "'The lie started out of fear and grew out of necessity.' He'd been surprised at his own invention. Kidnapped at gunpoint from the field, he'd been taken deep into the jungle, all the way to Julian's base at Black Lake. There he had witnessed the Imperial trooper challenge a prime leader, dispatched the creature with the efficiency of the trained killer, and established authority over the large family. He wanted troops, and these were his conscripts. This was not a total invention— One of many myths about Julian held that he trained primes to fight for him. Another myth said that, to the primes, he was a god. That was the great thing about myths, Tarn had thought. Anybody could invent one. Myths were just lies by another name. Tarn would tell of how he had tried to escape and received a rifle butt to the head as a response. How Julian had moved in to bayonet him, but a prime had stayed his arm. How feigning loss of consciousness, Tarn had managed to slip away and make it to the road, where, with astounding luck, he was spotted by a driver. Day by day, more details would emerge as he dredged memories from his traumatized mind. And for all those that doubted, he had taken Julian's buckle as proof. Prefect Peterson had listened and nodded and doubted. Tarn imagined that it was only the man's long friendship with his father that held back the prefect from full-blooded investigation into the amazing and highly suspect tale. The story went big. Not just in Nizel 5. The kidnapping was inconsequential, if not exactly commonplace, but the involvement of Julian was different. A legend had become real. Tarn had built a life upon that lie. Yet no one had been hurt by his fiction, and now his tour business paid enough for a reasonable lifestyle and the basic medication for his mother. He felt no guilt. He did, however, feel that the story, the real story, was unfinished. He'd been some distance into the jungle when he'd fallen and blacked out. Someone had carried him to the road. When Tarn drove the bus into the farmyard, Mother Lily was hanging washing. He sensed straight away that she would be brighter, and this proved to be the case when she swung around upon his approach. "'You need to wash that bus, Tarn,' she said. "'First impressions. You're running a business.' "'I know, but I need to eat first.' He picked up the basket of clothes to save her bending. Tomorrow. I've got three customers. They'll keep me quite a while, possibly till dark. I'll ask Jenny to come over. His mother pegged a faded orange shirt to the line. I'll be fine. Don't fuss. Your dad should be home by sunset if that truck doesn't let him down again. Muti. He swallowed hard. Yes, maybe. But I'm sure Jenny would like to see you anyway. I'll have a word. Dad was already home. His grave was in the lower meadow. But Tarn could not break the news to her again. And again. Sometimes a lie was the kindest way. Besides, within the hour she would again slip into that unresponsive place where she spent a majority of her life. Do as you like. She said, You usually do. And where did I learn that? He held out his hands. I'm sure I don't know. She gave him a rare smile and then waved him towards the kitchen. Let's get that food. The bus won't wash itself. The next morning, at precisely nine o'clock, Tarn arrived at the hotel in a still unwashed bus to pick up Anna and the two companions. They emerged dressed in dark green shirts, chestnut trousers and black boots, and carrying various equipment. Anna had a fat cloth bag slung over her shoulder. The shorter and stockier of the men carried a camera in one hand, a small case in the other, and had a water bottle slung from his belt. The other wore a rucksack and had a smaller camera around his neck and held a rifle. Taking no chances, I see. Tarn told Anna as she climbed on board the bus. "'I take chances all the time. That's why I go prepared.' She took the seat directly behind him. "'So, what's the usual tour?' "'Customers like to see the sight of some of Julian's daring raids. Most are from before I was born. First is the bridge over the Gelb River. You can see the old burnt timbers still down there on the banks.' The townsfolk rebuilt the bridge before I was even born. Next is the tree house where our cold Colonel Frank was found hanging, and then there's the ruins of the old armory, and the cottage of the Quisling, and the stolen arms of the statue of Arnold. After an hour and a half he pulled in at the side of Lake Poor Fortune. On the far side, slim purple trees crowded in against the shore. This was the site of the final battle of the war, when the Imperials cut their losses and ran. They say the lake was filled with bodies, and they're buried just beyond those trees. Anna shifted restlessly. Let's get to the jungle. I've had enough history. I want to hunt. Hunt Julian? You'd hunt an old man? He may be dead now anyway. He wasn't exactly young when I met him. Alive or dead, I still have a film to make. "'as if on cue her companions started to adjust their cameras. "'These visual magicians are Hashi and Benedictus. "'Hashi is the short, mean-looking one. "'He tells me he drove for the Maori mob. "'Benedictus spent time inside for inappropriate behavior. "'He puts the tacky and taciturn. "'Neither of them say much. "'They communicate through their art.' Hashi gave her a sideways glance. You're full of it, Anna. She laughed. Okay, sometimes they say too much. She leaned forward and put her hand on Tartan's shoulder. You were going to show me the buckle? He reached into his pocket and handed her the object. He heard an immediate intake of breath. What is it? he asked. I've done a lot of research into the military, the campaigns, equipment, and so on. She waved the buckle in front of his face. See the earth and moon? I'm pretty sure this is imperial military issue. In fact, I'm certain. That's good. I can't wait to get started. Tarn fired up the bus and moved off. Any part of the jungle in particular? This is your story, she told him. Take us to the place where you were found. Tarn leaned against the hot, sun-baked side of the bus and clipped a water bottle to his belt. He examined the undergrowth. The jungle stretched out in a near straight line to the left, where the uninspiring buildings of Dorf hugged the skyline, and to the right, where the road disappeared over the horizon, to eventually connect with New Bonn, "'capital city of Nysel Five and home to the wealthy, weird, and wicked. "'Opposite the jungle, cultivated fields stretched out in a variety of pastoral greens and yellows, "'crisscrossed by lanes and punctuated by the occasional huddle of farm buildings. "'Far beyond those fields, and over the edge of the world, "'lay the industrial heartland of the fortress-towns of Hexagon and Quarrymouth. Tarn strolled over to the spot where he'd been discovered by the driver.' The prime path was still evident. "'Once we get into the jungle, it all looks the same,' he said. "'I could never remember the route. "'This is not the only path.' "'Anna took the case from Hashi and removed the strange yellow cap. "'Let's try it on.' "'You really believe it will work?' "'Tarn had no idea what was possible or impossible. "'Off-world was a place of the imagination.' Only Nizel-5 was real. That depends. How big is your head? Does it matter? He took off his black cap and stuffed it in his belt. She reached up and placed the special cap on his head. No. Just helps it stay on. She gestured to Hashi to start filming. Don't try to remember, she told Tarn. It's like trying to run through deep water. Best to take it easy. Relax. See where the current leads you. Tarn adjusted the cap until he was satisfied it was as comfortable as it could be. It wasn't heavy, just top heavy. Lead on, Anna said. Tarn hesitated. We could get completely lost. You're putting a lot of faith in this hat. Not really. She showed him her wristwatch, only it wasn't a watch. This is my ball of string. She pressed buttons and the unit bleeped. Wherever we go now, this can backtrack our movements to this very spot. We might get hungry or hot or tired, but we won't get lost. Comforted, Tarn stepped down into the shallow depression and entered the undergrowth. Almost immediately he thought he recognized the incline where he found the buckle, but said nothing. Underfoot, the ground was uneven and occasionally muddy. Overhead, the sky was screened by laced vegetation. He checked the others were following, then continued on while the world chattered and buzzed and rustled around him. After half an hour, the canopy opened up and they walked to the edge of a gully filled with oily black water and cotton-topped grasses. The only way across was a fallen log that had been fashioned into a bridge. Julian's work, you think? said Anna. Tarn shrugged and screwed up his nose against the smell from the bog. Get the camera in close, she told Hashi. That stench will knock the viewers out of their chairs. Maybe the aboriginals built it, Hashi suggested as he filmed. Are they capable of this? I don't know what they're capable of, Tarn confessed. It's hard to observe something that hardly ever leaves the jungle. I don't know about primes or bridges. So you don't know if they're aggressive, said Anna. It's a bit late to ask now, Tarn shook his head. You must have seen this bridge before, though, if we're on the right track, said Anna. Tarn examined her golden eyes. I'd forgotten... Now that I see it, I remember Julian prodding his gun in my back to encourage me across. And I remember the smell. Hey, your cap does work. He took it off for a moment to scratch his scalp, then replaced it. Let's get over before Benedictus decides to reprise the event with his rifle. And don't slip. I also have no idea what might live in the sludge. Deeper and deeper into the jungle they walked, sometimes in conversation, but often in cautious silence. Tarn was troubled by a sense of displacement. Who was the alien here? Humans had not been on this planet long enough to catalogue all the dangers, but he knew enough to be cautious. There were molarks, living landmines of teeth and muscle, the aggressive hook tree fishing for food, and snapping beetles the size and appearance of a hand. Tales had also spread of swamps that bubbled poisonous gas, and vines that lynched. And then there were the primes. There was so much to learn here. However, colonization priorities were clear. First survival, then freedom, and finally, for those with the time and curiosity, comes cataloging. Another hour passed, and, with the sun past his zenith, Tarn sat upon a flat rock and phoned Jenny. He spoke quietly and briefly. When he dropped his phone back into his pocket, Anna joined him on the rock. You're a good son, she said. Is your mother not well? She manages. We both manage. She must be proud of you, he stood, when she remembers who I am. They moved on up the path. From time to time, Anna would narrate to the camera or record Tarn's returning memories from that traumatizing event so long ago. Occasionally, they would come to a crossing of routes or a split, and Tarn would meditate to let the Cap ease out his memories and choose the path. At least, that's how he played the game. It hardly mattered which way he went. It was all new to him. Soon Taran's feet were sore with the uneven ground and his shirt was patched with sweat. He'd fallen more than once and also scratched his right leg on a branch. "'Could we take a rest?' he asked Anna. "'I thought you colonials were as hard as nails.' "'Not this colonial. I'm as hard as a mint nut, which isn't very hard, in case you were wondering.' He felt for the supply in his pocket and brought out a mint nut." "'placed it in his mouth. "'I'm just a simple tour guide,' he mumbled. "'She gave him the smile, and, for a moment, he regretted his words. "'Perhaps he should have played tougher to impress her. "'He shed the thought. "'Lying to others was easy, but he shouldn't lie to himself. "'He had a long history of taking the soft option. "'His father had made sure of that. "'Okay.' "'said Anna. "'We'll stop soon. "'When they next came upon a clearing, "'Anna dropped her bag and sat with Tarn upon the damp grass. "'He gazed around at the ring of shadowy undergrowth, "'the twisted leaves of copper, green and red. "'Anything could be hiding in there, watching, waiting. "'What was he doing out here? "'The money no longer seemed a sufficient reason.' He didn't know where he was going, and he could be leading them anywhere, into danger or a trap. This place could be holy ground to the primes. Or maybe Julian was real after all, and still alive. He examined the cap contraption. This was crazy, trying to simulate memories he didn't have. What damage might it be doing to his head? Still, it was too late now. He was here. "'Does Earth have jungles like this?' he asked Anna as he watched Benedictus prowl the perimeter with his rifle at the ready. "'You don't know?' her brow furrowed. Hashi slumped down a short distance away. "'Maybe he doesn't know anything. Just a dumb farmer. We're a long way from civilization, or even a decent cup of coffee.' Anna tutted. "'Let's not play the arrogant Earthers,' big city folk. She turned to Tarn. The heat makes Hashi irritable. In fact, everything makes him irritable. She glanced at Hashi, but he was watching Benedictus. Most everywhere has jungles like this. Not identical, obviously. The seeds of life are ubiquitous. But evolution is imaginative. Still, some solutions are just the best. I've traveled to a lot of worlds, and you'd be surprised how often it's more deja vu than discovery. What did they teach you in school? When to plant potatoes, and to hold your breath when underwater. Anna laughed and punched his shoulder gently. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to insult you. We did do Earth in school, but you'd not want to know our perspective. "'Tarn swigged from his water bottle. "'Did you study Nisel 5?' "'Anna lay back, head in hands, and gazed up at the blue sky. "'Not till I found out about Julian.' "'It must be so easy on Earth,' said Tarn. "'You're all rich and educated, and you can have anything you want.' "'Anna rolled onto one elbow and glared at him. "'Nothing is easy. "'I've had to fight for everything I've got.' And I do mean fight, scratch, kick, and punch. Nobody gave me a free ride. At a shuffling from the trees, she sat up and Benedictus crouched. What do you think? Anna whispered to Tarn. Something dangerous? Like an imperial trooper? A wild animal. They're all wild here. You're playing with me, she grabbed his arm. Should I be worried? He shrugged. "'Possibly, but we have the rifle.' The bushes parted, and an adult prime about Tarn's height stepped cautiously into the clearing. It wore a faded black sash at its waist and carried a long, sharp stick. "'Something like a Terran chimpanzee,' said Anna, her voice bright with excitement. "'But Chips don't carry spears. The posture is most erect, more human, and he's clearly male.' Tarn rose slowly so as not to alarm the creature. What does he want? said Anna. I don't know. I've never known what they want. Try asking him. They don't speak and usually don't hang around long enough. I have tried before. He took a step towards the creature, and then another. He held his hands out to show they were empty, not a threat. We're trying to find the lake, he said. The black... Dark lake. The prime cocked his head, revealing healthy white teeth. Water, said Tarn. He stooped and moved his flat hand smoothly from side to side, as though touching the surface of water. He slapped his hand downwards and said, Splash! Then threw his hands up like a fountain. The prime made a throaty sound that could have been a laugh. Its eyes were wide and brown. It mimicked Tarn's gesture of slapping down and made a hissing noise through its teeth. Tarn nodded emphatically. Yes, water! The prime pushed into the bushes, then looked back and splashed its flat hand again. It waited, gazing from one human to the other. I think he wants us to follow, said Anna. She grabbed her bag. Let's go! Hashi spoke from behind his camera. Is that wise?' "'Maybe not,' she admitted as she followed the prime into the undergrowth. "'But it does make great footage.' They trailed behind the prime for over an hour as the path took them down muddy gullies, up treacherous inclines, and around the occasional giant hag-tree that cackled as it perceived their scent. Tarn could find no relief from the heat and humidity. Even his scalp sweated. He took off the cap and wafted it before his face. Still they did not stop. Hashi appeared to suffer the most. He groaned and cursed and slapped at insects and threatened terrible revenge on Julian for putting him through this ordeal. When they finally reached a junction, the Prime chose the left route without hesitation. Anna grabbed Tarn's sleeve. Are we going the right way? I don't know. She snatched the cap from his hand and slapped it on his head. "'Try now,' he grunted and peered to front and rear. "'Yes, I think so.' Within minutes, his guess proved to be correct. The path opened out and they found themselves upon a narrow grass bank. Before them, a circular lake stretched out, possibly five hundred meters, to a bank with thick, twisted gem-fruit trees. Tarn was stunned. This was not the placid oasis he'd expected to find. The water was alive, fiercely brilliant with the afternoon sun and bubbling with the pungent breath of the rock beneath. Here and there, fat denuded trunks punched through the agitated water like ancient columns. Flying insects formed dark, drifting mists close to the surface. Hashi took in the vista with his camera while Anna posed at the water's edge, hands on hips. Benedictus roamed with his rifle, alert for danger. Tarn sniffed at a mirrored gem fruit on a nearby branch. He knew better than to touch the sticky surface. The corpses of dragonflies and an unfortunate greyshank clung to the fruit high in the tree. Eventually those branches would bend to the center line of the tree, and would drop the fruit, and their catch, into the maw. Of course, Tarn was too heavy for the tree, but he did not relish the tug-of-war or spending the next few hours with a decaying fruit stuck to his hand. The jungle was filled with such things, monstrous vegetation that should have terrified him. Yet he found he was more anxious about Anna's two companions. He suspected they were much more deadly than anything in this jungle. Off to the side, the Prime observed the humans. Tarn knelt to peer into the water. The bed of the lake was black, covered with a tightly knit weed, but the water was clear. Tarn scooped some into his hand and found it almost too hot to hold. Was it safe to drink? The prime screeched and waved his arm at Tarn. A warning? He tipped the water from his hand. Ask your friend to take us to Julian's hide, said Anna. "'I'll smile at him and look helpless,' said Tarn. "'That's the best you're going to get.' "'Show him the buckle. It might work. "'One way or the other, we're going to search around the lake. "'I reckon we've got five more hours of daylight.' "'Tarn held up the buckle for the prime to see. "'Immediately, the creature headed away along the bank. "'Well, he's taking us somewhere,' Tarn followed. Only a short distance along the path, they stepped around a long, low, grass-covered mound and came upon a man-sized opening in the bushes, roofed and woven leaves with a dry grass bed. This could be it! Anna climbed inside the construction. Julian's hide. His home. Or a prime nest, Tarn suggested. Do they nest? I've heard rumors. Don't you remember this? Isn't this where he brought you? Tarn scanned his surroundings. They've moved the furniture. Anna rooted around the grass bed. Wait! She rolled out and jumped to her feet. Look at this! It was in the grass! Tarn steadied her hand and saw she was holding a turquoise oval button. Hashi moved in close to film the event. This is military! I know it! She insisted. Tarn could not deny a surge of excitement. Here was some real evidence. A screech sliced the air. Tarn spun round to see their prime guide shaking his spear at Benedictus, who was standing upon the long grassy mound. The creature was unhappy about something. "'He wants you to move!' Anna shouted. "'And I think I know why.' Hashi turned his camera towards the confrontation. "'I think you're standing on a grave,' Anna announced. "'Benedict moved to step down, but she yelled, "'No! Stay there! Let him scream! Hashi, are you getting this?' "'The Prime screeched again and pointed its spear like an accusation. "'Tarn felt he should do something. "'We need to calm him down.' "'It was too late. "'As the Prime lunged and grasped at his shirt, "'Benedictus put a bullet in his thigh.' The gunshot sent shy shadow birds flapping for the sky. The prime dropped to the ground, with blood pumping over matted hair. Its breathing was rapid, its eyes circles of bewilderment. Tarn gaped at Anna. Ice had entered her golden eyes. So now what do we do? Hashi growled. Come on, Anna, you've got all the ideas. I don't know! She squeezed her face in her hands. I wouldn't need to know if not for your idiot companion. Hashi grabbed Anna by the arm. He's worth ten of you, girl. You're just a chancer. A get-rich-quick fake. Tarn stepped forward. What does he mean, fake? Anna tore Hashi's hand loose and turned her cold eyes upon her young guide. I wish you hadn't heard that. She marched towards the injured prime. We got attacked by a dangerous animal, said Anna. It's all in the editing, but we need a shot of the corpse. Benedictus lowered his rifle. You want me to finish it off? Do you see another corpse? He shrugged. You're the one with the scheme. He put the rifle to his shoulder and took aim at the prime's head. Tarn leaped in and forced the rifle away. You're not killing it. "'Somehow he felt that he owed the primes, "'even though the debt was of his own invention. "'No prime had really stopped Julian's bayonet. "'Tarn wrestled for the rifle, "'but Benedictus tore it free "'and pointed the barrel at the young man. "'I don't see the advantage in taking you back with us.' "'Tarn prepared himself for another lunge "'when a terrible squeal made him spin around. "'Hashi had plunged a knife into the wounded creature's throat.' The prime gurgled, made a low hissing sound, and went limp. One problem solved, said Anna. Tarn charged over to her. You cold bitch! It's just an animal. And it did viciously attack this poor farm boy, said Hashi. Alarm swept through Tarn. It didn't, but it will do. I'll have the evidence on film, he circled the corpse, filming. This documentary will be massive. Tarn examined Anna's eyes. They were unreadable. Was this the plan from the start, he asked? To leave me here? Not mine, she said. But maybe the boys had it in mind. Is that right, Hashi? Hashi might have answered except for the spear that slammed with a thud into his back. The shirt on his chest spiked forward like a tent, "'blood spreading swiftly. "'He fell back upon the mound. "'Another spear bounced off Benedict's backpack. "'He ducked, firing off shots as primes rushed into view. "'They were upon him. "'He swung the butt and knocked aside the first. "'The second he punched to the ground. "'The third buried a spear deep into his side. "'For a moment he struggled with the shaft, "'but his fingers were slick with blood. "'Then he went down under a torrent of blows.' Tarn waited for the next spear to strike him, but none came. From the trees and bushes more primes emerged. Two of them gathered up the body of their companion and carried him away. Another dragged Hashi off the mound and tossed the body to the side. The crowd around Benedictus moved apart, and Tarn had no doubt that he was dead. One of the Primes, a tall male whose dappling was streaked with gray, approached Tarn and gestured for him to move away from Anna, who had slunk in close to hide behind him. It pointed its spear at the young woman. Tarn shook his head. No, I can't let you do that. He noticed that the creature had knotted a grubby red cloth around its upper arm. The Prime bared its teeth and hissed. It shook the spear. It's not going to stop, Anna gasped. It means to kill me. She clutched at Tarn's shirt, trembling. There's no need for more killing, Tarn told the creature. You don't need to do it. Julian would not want you to do it. Another, smaller prime appeared. Tarn recognized the black arrowhead patch on its forehead. This was the young creature that liked to watch him. It coughed at its kinsmen, a long and complex communication. After a frozen moment, the older prime lowered its spear and gestured for them all to follow. It crossed to the mound where the primes were scooping water from the lake to wash blood from the grass. I think this may be Julian's grave, Tarn told Anna. That's a big guess on little evidence. Even if it is a grave, it could just be one of them. Tarn addressed the older Prime. "'Is this Julian?' He pointed to the mound, but the creature did not respond. Tarn took out the buckle and held it up. "'Julian.' The Prime's eyes widened and it snatched the buckle from his fingers. Anna was biting her lip. "'Get ready to run,' she told Tarn. "'What's the point? We wouldn't get far.' "'Any other ideas?' I think you've already had enough. The old Prime made a sharp keening sound, and the other creatures backed away. He placed the buckle carefully upon the mound. A chatter spread amongst the onlookers. The apparent leader then waved at the young Prime with the arrowhead patch, who immediately strode away to a gap in the bushes, turned, and waited. He wants us to follow, said Tarn. That's not the way we came. He could be leading us anywhere. We're not being offered a choice. The Prime pushed into the jungle, and Tarn hurried after. When he glanced behind to check on Anna, he saw she had collected Hashi's camera and was running to catch up, occasionally turning to film the mayhem they were leaving. Tarn struggled to stay with the fast-moving creature. Branches whipped at him and barbs tore at his shirt. With the cap clasped in his hands, he chewed through his supply of mint nuts while his thoughts whirled over a cascade of bad decisions and a postponed gore-fueled nausea clamped at his stomach. Neither he nor Anna spoke for a long time. He was only partly surprised when they eventually reached the long bridge over the black pool. By now he was gasping for breath. "'Wait a moment!' Tarn yelled to the Prime. We can't keep up. Anna was doubled up, but managed to whisper, I'll be all right. We're nearly back at the road. Give me a minute. Tarn took in gulps. The Prime stood half hidden by bush ferns and watched. It showed no sign of fatigue. Anna leaned a hand on Tarn as she straightened up but he shook it off. Tell me, she said. Do you really believe that was Julian's grave? It's possible. I wasn't even sure he was real, she confessed. I'm still not sure. So you're not his great-granddaughter. Hashi said it. I'm a fake. The prime moved off again, and Tarn nearly tripped as he hurried after "'What else did you lie about?' he shouted back. "'Seeing as we're coming clean, the button, I planted it for the film. "'And what else?' "'The money. "'I'm not rich, although I do intend to be.' "'She caught up. "'He turned so suddenly that she bumped into him. "'I trusted you.' "'Don't be so superior, Tarn. "'I know you were lying about being kidnapped by Julian.' You're just as much a fake as me. What makes you memories? She cut him off and snatched the yellow cap from his hand. This brought your memories back. But the truth is, it's just an ordinary cap with wires. It does nothing. It was all about the film. She tossed it into the bushes. The prime returned and gestured for them to move on. Was everything you told me a lie? he asked. The buckle might be genuine. So we're no closer to the truth about Julian now than we were before, said Tarn. Was it all worth it? She held the camera to her chest. I wasn't looking for the truth. Just the chance to make money. Two men are dead. And what marvelous men they were. Shortly, they burst out onto the road. Tarn's bus remained where he had left it. The elongated shadow of the jungle loomed across the fields as the sun dropped low in a plum sky. Anna leaned against the bus to catch her breath. Tarn stared at her until she raised her eyebrows in query. You would have let them kill me, he said. Of course not. You misjudge me. "'Perhaps,' said Tarn. "'But I'll have to report what happened here.' "'Of course you will,' she agreed. "'Hashi and Benedictus were killed by an unprovoked attack by the primes. "'Who could have guessed they were so vicious, so territorial? "'A tragic event, but a great story, a great film. "'That's what happened.' "'I can't. You can!' "'She pulled open the creaking door to the bus.' Or I'll have to reveal that you're fake, too. That might just destroy the tour business. That business was his life. How else could he afford to look after his mother? He could hardly go to the city. Anna put a hand on his shoulder, and he shuddered at her heartless touch. "'Sometimes a lie is for the best,' she said. Again she gave him that smile. "'Surely I don't have to tell you that. "'You and me? "'We're just the same.' "'As she got onto the bus, "'Tarn looked around at their prime guide "'who had been observing their exchange. "'Tarn nodded a thank you, "'and the prime straightened its back and saluted. "'A military salute. "'Then the creature stepped forward with its hand extended. "'Cautiously, Tarn met its hand with his,' and felt the softness and warmth. "'I suspect that's the second time in my life that you've helped me,' Tarn said. "'Now he was certain who had saved him all those years ago. "'I owe you double.' "'Then the creature ran off into the trees. "'On the drive back to the hotel, Tarn's thoughts were in turmoil. "'The martial primes. "'The killing of Hashi and Benedictus.' "'Julian's grave. "'And Anna. "'No, they were not the same, "'Anna and him. "'His lies had been born from fear, "'not greed. "'And he was no longer afraid. "'Not of his father, "'not of anything. "'As he steered the bus "'along the uneven road, "'he pulled the black cap from his belt "'and put it back on. "'So,' said Anna, "'is it a deal?' After a moment's hesitation, he held out his hand and they shook. Yes. He had just told his last lie. As soon as Anna was in flight, Tarn would visit his old friend, Prefect Peterson. Anna would arrive at her destination to the welcome she deserved. Tarn expected problems from Peterson, not the least the gloating of a man finally proved right. But, whatever the consequences, Tarn was ready to bear them. Tonight, he would consider his future, his skills and options, his chances of another job, and, just maybe, the possibility of a new tour. Tomorrow, he would wash the bus. (sighs)
2: Again, for a final time, big thank you to Colin P. Davies. Don't forget, the copyright is Collins. Colin, thank you so much. Thank you so much for you know ending two thousand and fifteen for with a great story. And Sarah, it was lovely to kind of you see to have you on. You know, what I mean, lovely to kind of come over to Starship Service. So Full, hopefully, hopefully both of yous, we can get yous again in two thousand and sixteen. That would be fantastic. So that is, that is 2015 coming to a close. Do you know what I mean? We have, like you say, lots going on in 2016. It is Starship's over its 10th year. Jeremy is kind of up and running and doing all sorts. Do you know what I mean? Submissions so are open at this time. They will soon be closed though. Do you know what I mean? Just, I've got him at this desk, you know what I mean? Kind of tied to the desk, editor's desk there. And he's going through some of the stories that are just not very nice, you know what I mean, hmm, it's not something you want to show your mother, no, no, especially that young lad, you know what I mean, so like I say, we've got all that, but please, you know what I mean, funding, my God, we're on our own, it's three shows to look after, we've got Patreon, it's all set up there for you, do you know what I mean, little kind of donation, get we're through this year, get we're kind of sorted, you know what I mean, make my dream come true where I kind of retire soon and kind of do this full time and that's the goal i've got all sorts of kind of irons in the fire which i'll be talking about i'll do a, a meta show one day and kind of lay it all down what my ideas for 2016 that'll be coming soon as well Listen, at the end, actually, at the end of this, you know, I've got my little kind of add-on at the end of the kind of the, the outro music. If you wanted to kind of listen to a few more words by my good self, you know, on my experiences keeping fit, because I am a bit of a health guru, you know, I like to think myself on anyways, you know what I mean? And with this being, you know, the kind of time of year, it's, it's, it's up to you anyway if you want to go and listen to that. But if you don't, well, listen, it's been lovely having yous on. You know, on the ride for two thousand and fifteen. If you've been there since the the beginning in two thousand and six, you mean June two thousand and six? Yes, and I can tell you know because I've moved all photographs from. Well, I'm using Dropbox still, but I'm now using the Google, the Google's cloud for photographs, and it puts them in all nice order. And you know, I can the first pictures of Corbett's chair were kind of in the June of two thousand. And, and, and six, that's where I can kind of tell, well, we kicked off roundabout there as well because I was messing around and doing these images in 2006. Mm. So, main thing is support where, you know, Patreon, do not again, all that. Big thank you to everyone throughout the year who's kind of helped and contributed and given up their time. Do you know what I mean? Everyone else, you know, appreciate what we're doing there and look after it. That's all I ask in 2016. And that you're healthy and well and you have a blast. I mean, that's the whole point of kind of living that you enjoy it. Do you know what I mean? Join the newsletter. There's a lot going on there where we kind of, you know, it is a community and it's a, certainly a community over there. And, you know, we've got a lot going on over there where, we're, you know, we're going to kind of help out as well, you know, as a, a community does and do things and, you know, health-wise as well. There's all sorts going on, all sorts. Get the newsletter, you'll find you'll find all that out in the future. But I'd just like to say, thank you so much you know what I mean? 2015 was a good year for me, kind of, you know. Yeah, I had a few, like, bumps and dimps, but, you know, a good year. I hope it has been for you. Until 2016, I would just like to say, good night from me.
5: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their
0: integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement?
4: Tune in next
2: week for the next exciting installment of of procedure machine. set for us. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. This is where I want to just, you know, with the kind of reaction reaction I got from talking about the, you know, making the troubles in the in the Lake District with the weather, I got such a lovely response from that. And I thought, oh, that'd be nice, you know, odd times to kind of put it like something, not related to starships or just, you know, just a thought or a random part of my life, something like that, just so I can kind of talk on for a, a few minutes. Do you know what I mean? Just tip it, tick it on the end, and see how it goes. And with we're coming into. What's especially nice as well, 2016, the 10th anniversary of Starship Sova, we originally set out, do you know what I mean, myself and Kieran, to, to do this like like a talk, you know what I mean, the, the idea, before it was even Starship Sova. Was called Corbett's Chair. That's what we can originally had the name, and I've looked and I've still got bits of the artwork where I kind of cobbled it together. Do you know what I mean? So it was Corbett's Chair, and the idea was, you know, we would sit down and we would talk about science fiction, and you know, Ronnie Corbett from the two Ronnies, a British, you know, TV classic show, two TV icons in the comic industry. They got together, and Ronnie Corbett, a little fella would sit down on this chair at the end of a show and just chat. And that's quite fitting. You know, 10 years on, I would do the same. And I thought this, you know, this particular time, you know, the, the, the new year and, well, my exploits, should I say, in trying to get fit, trying to get on healthier. And this was probably about, well, it was probably more than 15 years ago. Do you know what I mean? And I was kind of, I think, you know, getting, to fit, fitness, looking after yourself. It's been here with me for a long, long time. It's kind of doubly there now. Do you know what I mean? Uber kind of in with everything now. But it was a while ago and, you know, not that I'd lived, you know, a kind of an unhealthy le- lifestyle, but I think I needed to kind of, you know, take note of you know, the the kind of mess I was eating, probably, and, you know, and I I thought, you know what I mean, and I'd, I'd like you see at the time, it was early, you know what I mean, early days, I thought, actually, I was coming with, you know, just starting hair fever, and I thought with all kind of remedies and, you know, natural things, I might be able to kind of get shot of that, and as it happens, I didn't have hair fever, you know what I mean, just kind of sneeze and that, but there was... For a number of days, it was kind of you know it was just one of these things where it was kind of playing on my mind, and I was sneezing a lot, and you know, and I was thinking, am I allergic to something? Am I kind of? And I just wanted to kind of make sure. On the you know the beginning of the year, I also remember it was the new year as well. It was one of those kind of resolutions. Let's get fit. Let's sort myself out. Let's you know, and I thought it'd be nice now to kind of reminisce about that because it's exactly the same time when I kind of took this up. And I was just looking, just when I came kind of before I started there, fun facts about sneezing. <laughs> it comes out at a hundred mile an hour, you sneeze, do you know what I mean? And for that, there is a split second there where for the briefest, honestly, for the briefest of seconds, split, you lose everything, every bodily control. You're not, you're not capable of kind of doing anything, you know, you, you can't, certainly can't stop it, do you know what I mean? And I love that idea, like, not that I love it kind of mentally or health-wise, you know what would I mean? But just, For that second, you've got no control. And that sneeze comes out and germs go everywhere and all sorts. And I'd been like a little bit, not to say plagued by, you know, but it was enough to kind of put on the radar that, I wonder if you're becoming this, you know, and you're becoming that. And it's because you're eating your own and all that. So I took this idea to get fit and to get kind of healthy for the new year. Now, like I say, we're probably talking round about, you know, the 2000 millennium, maybe even a little bit. A bit before that when I kind of took up this course, you know, each and every year it seems it happens. And one of the things was we've got this kind of a shop called Holland and Barrett and it's Neil's Yard and it sells, you know, like all these kind of herbal remedies. And I'm actually I'm still taking I've got to go to the whole rack of vitamins there. But it sells all these kind of stuff, you know, and I got into kind of trying to really be healthy eating. So I was eating like lots of nuts and lots of kind of dried fruit. And my favourite thing was, um, it was like, you know, the dried apricots. Oh man, I loved the dried apricots. And that's where I kind of, and I quite liked it for that, do you know what I mean? Because I love that stuff even nowadays, do you know what I mean? The dried apricots, all dried fruit. And I was aiming to go kind of down that road, Look after myself. Start getting away from kind of crisps, you know, white sandwiches, especially you know, and all that kind of nonsense. And just start kind of slacking on these particular things instead of having taken, like, say, a beer to work or anything like that, where it was kind of pop, coke, you know, what I mean, that the usual stuff. And the main thing was though, I wanted to kind of get fit, and it was when, as well, this is, I guess, the time as well, when Newcastle United was pretty doing pretty well and in the city they'd opened up their own gym and this was the kind of cool thing it was a newcastle united gym and it was on five floors and it had everything man oh man it had right in the basement it had like a kind of full fancy swimming pool all the saunas everything like that i mean it cost a fortune a month i remember that you know but on a different floor it had all kind of these dance floors You know, yes, now it's, these are kind of common knowledge, but like I said, there was five floors of machines, personal instructor floors, dance floors, studios, this, that, the other, swimming pools, saunas, the lot. You got your own, you know, you got like towels given, dressing gowns, slippers, the whole thing was gorgeous. I mean, the price was at that time, fantastic, but everyone kind of went there and I was going, I must've been going there with my friend Dickie for about, oh, let's see. We've been going there three or four months anyways. Do you know what I mean? And we're right into it, you know. And I guess at a gym, you're normally a bit kind of shy, you know, when you first go in. So we'd kind of been there a few months and we would, you know, we'd go around the kind of weights, we'd do all the cardio, we'd do everything like that. And we'd even do these kind of classes. And now I'm not normally into that kind of thing, you know what I mean? But we would do them because, like you see, you come out, you know, for 15 minutes. I think one was called bums and tums, you know what I mean? You'd come out like, man, just shattered. So here we are. We kind of, we we, tur- we rocks up one day. We do all our kind of weight, all our kind of, you know, cycling, rowing, everything like that. We were planning to do a, a kind of soda and swimming in a, like a jacuzzi. And we'd been you know, I think we'd booked ourselves into some sort of abs-crunchy kind of thing where your butt's in the air and you're kind of doing loads of sit-ups and all that kind of nonsense. And this is where as well, this is where I've got to kind of bring you back, I was kind of a couple of months into it of trying to kind of look after myself, or a few weeks of you know, it was somewhere around, that's what I'm trying to think back now, of this new year. So I'd been doing it for a little bit. And I think I might have been, because I do give, I give up, you know what I mean? I think I might have been starting to wane or, you know, just something wasn't clicking right. And I was starting to get hungry all the time, do you know what I mean? And I wondered, But I wanted to kind of desperately, you know, stick to me kind of healthier lifestyle. Because I certainly did feel a lot better, do you know what I mean? And I was somewhere like probably... 12, 13, 14 stones, somewhere around there, you know what I mean, I'm kind of touching 16 there now, do you know what I mean, so, you can see, (laughs) it's been very good, so, I, I think, what I wanted, I wanted to kind of, if I remember rightly, I wanted to kind of not eat crap, but, you know, still eat the healthy brass, Hungry, so I remember my wife buying us that day or you know, that morning. I had you know, it was one of them big kilogram bag of dried apricots. And mind you, I could eat them and survive, uh, but I couldn't eat all that. Do you know what I mean? But for this day, one day, you know, what I, mean, I decided I could eat all them. Do you know what I mean? No problem whatsoever, and eat a few more. Do you know what I mean? So I was eating all this kind of dried fruit and this kind of big bag of apricots. We did all the gym and everything like that and I sailed through it, do you know what I mean? But then we were booked in for this certain time for this, you know, like kind of advanced, you know, gut-wrenching kind of bums and tums, abs, some sort of class. I started to get this pain in me, in me kind of lure, rib cage, do you know what I mean? It was like kind of, it wasn't like in me gut, do you know what I mean? Where I thought, oh, what the, you know, instantly, oh, there's something not right there, am so starting to get this kind of pain, you know, in there. And I was going through the kind of this routine with Dick, you know, Dickie, my friend, and I could see him on the floor. We're both kind of lying side by side, and I was like, "Oh man, oh God, is, something's up here." So we left there. Do you know what I mean? We kind of left this this little workout session, this studio session. Went downstairs to honestly, and like I say, when I say this club was fantastic, do you know what I mean? Just brand new, everything was gorgeous. We went downstairs. And I said, I'm going to have to like, go to the toilet. I don't know what the hell is wrong with this. But I said, I don't know if it's like wind. Do you know what I mean? All these kind of apricots. I've kind of troughed. Do you know? And, and it was almost like cramp. Do you know what I mean? By the time I got to the kind of toilet, you know what I mean? I'm kind of sweating almost. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, oh man, I'm trying to like be healthy. What's going on here? You know, I'm doubled up there. I get into the toilets, you know what I mean, and I think, oh man I need to kind of just go to the toilet, see if that'll kind of this windle you know get 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 sorted. and i don 't know if it was wind or cramp or anything like that, so I goes into the the kind of the cubicle like I see brand new you know fantastic cleanliness, it's just unreal, and I starts to kind of undo the you know what i mean kind of you know assume the position on and you know what I mean? I can just kind of get there. Do You know what I mean? I'm thinking, thank God for this. It looks like it was, you know, my worst fears have come true. You know what I mean? Eating that bag of prunes is the sole cause, and this is the sole kind of, you know, final outcome. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to have to sit on the pan for bloody hours. So I'm in this. You know, picture this, and this is, not, please, you know, ladies, gentlemen, do you know what I mean? <laughs> Your kind of senses. I'm in what's only kind of probably described as. A, a skier, you know, like a kind of, a snow skier in that kind of downhill position, do you know what I mean? Like a, a ski jumper, you know, where you go in that downhill position, and that's the only way I can kind of relieve myself, you know, I mean, you know, everything, I like, going round my ankles, in this position, trying to get down, and I sneezed. And that's when <laughs> you realise, you know what I mean? It's a bad day. And in that split second when I say, you know, sneezes, for that split second you have no control. Things shoot out at hundred mile an hour. <laughs> yes <laughs> the worst imaginable thing happened. And for that split second it did. I sneezed and no bodily grip on muscles or anything was was inevitable. And like I say, the the result was pretty was pretty horrific, to be quite honest. And I didn't know what to do. Do you know what I mean? I'm standing there in this downhill position, looking at a door which looked, you know what I mean, all nice posters, all kind of keep fit this and do this nice lift music going on. And at the back I knew there was a sight that would kinda of make any anybody just put their head down in shame. And for the next 30 minutes or something, I had to stay in there. <coughs> Excuse me. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't. Are <laughs> you hey, all right, Tone? Ah, oh, yeah, i just just getting get myself sorted. <laughs> i still got a fever, Tone. I think it's passed. I think it's passed. But, yes, that's the reason. So there's a little warning for you. Do you know what I mean? This New Year's kind of resolution. Make sure you don't, you know, because there is a, there is a cause and there isn't an effect. And the-
4: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag. With Quince, go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns.
2: <laughs> the cause of eating one bag, one kilogram bag of dried dried apricots. The effect is. It's not a very nice one. we to kind of, it took a while. It took thirty minutes of a lot of toilet paper, a lot of embarrassed flushing, and that was the result. So there you go, my little venture down into the kind of the health world. I hope you never ever have to go down down there and visit that particular scenario.